I was saying uh, when we were invited, uh, we, were, we were told, preach your favorite sermon. I said, okay, I know what that is. I dug it out, found out I'd preached it here already. So I had to figure out a second famous or a favorite sermon. And what I'm preaching on today is called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I wonder what this expression means to you when you hear it, blood, sweat, and tears. Now, some of you are going to immediately think about a rock band from the 1960s. Others of you, the more sophisticated of you, will perhaps remember a famous quote from Winston Churchill. In his first speech before the House of Commons as Prime Minister uh, back in uh, 1940, just as World War II was beginning to affect England, in his inaugural speech, he stood before the House of Commons and said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. When I was thinking about using this expression for today, I really didn't have in mind that rock group. I'm thinking more of what uh, Churchill was thinking. I'm thinking of blood, sweat, and tears that represent how hard you're willing to work, how much effort you're willing to give for your cause, how much your cause means to you. Blood, sweat, and tears means that you're ready to give 100%. You're ready to give everything, whatever it takes. And that's what Churchill meant. He says, yes, I'm going to be your prime minister. It's wartime, but I'm going all out. I'm ready to give my all. I'll work as hard as I can because England is worth it. I want to apply this concept of blood, sweat, and tears in two different ways today. I'm thinking, uh, actually, of another man besides Churchill, another great man who, who gave his blood, his sweat, and his tears for a cause. But he was more than just a man, and his cause was greater than trying to save just uh, England. Of course, I'm thinking about Jesus. Jesus gave his utmost effort to save not just one country, but the whole world from sin and death and hell. He gave his all to save you and me from eternal destruction. And I'm asking you to think with me just for a moment here about how much your salvation meant to him, how much your salvation was worth. To Jesus. It was worth his tears. <clears throat> the New Testament in the gospel speaks of several times when Jesus wept. He wept tears of sorrow. And of course, you all know that memory verse, shortest memory verse in the Bible. Jesus wept from John eleven thirty five. He wept in sorrow to see his family or the family and friends of his friend Lazarus in such grief over Lazarus's death. <clears throat> but actually, the, the tears Jesus shed at that uh, episode of the raising of Lazarus were more than tears of sorrow. They were tears of rage. Rage against the enemy, death. 
which had attacked his friend Lazarus. In John 11, verse 33 and 38, there's a specific word that's used. These verses say, When Jesus therefore saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And verse 38, he says, Jesus therefore again being deeply moved within came to the tomb. That Greek word that's translated deeply moved in those verses also has a meaning, a basic meaning about being moved with rage or as uh, the lexicons say, to snort with rage. And that's the word used for Jesus here. In most of the translations that we use, it says he was deeply moved. But I checked a recent translation, a more recent one, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And it actually says, translates, that Jesus was angry in his spirit. Angry at the enemy, Satan, and the enemy, death. And these tears that he was shedding were tears of rage. But he also shed tears of love in his life. The one other passage that specifically mentions Jesus weeping is Luke 19, verse 41, which says when uh, Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, a city that was blessed by God and blessed to God, but which had rejected the Messiah and Jesus expresses this love that led him to weep in Matthew 23, 37, when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. And you can just see the tears flowing down his cheeks as he said this. You were unwilling. Jesus gave his tears. He gave his sweat also. There's that one passage in the Gospels, Luke 22:44, that talks about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in such fervor in prayer to God. It says he was in agony and he was praying fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And of course, what he was thinking about and praying about at that moment was the upcoming cross that he was going to have to suffer on. And it brought the sweat out as he was there before God praying about it. Most of all, Jesus gave his blood. In all those tortures and all those agonies that led to his death, the scourging, you know, the crown of thorns, the nails, the spear in his side, all these drew his blood, which he willingly shed. The one verse that specifically mentions blood being shed in these times of torture is John 19.34, which says, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a sword, and immediately there came out blood and water. Acts 20, verse 28, talks about Jesus purchasing. He ransomed the church of God with his own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished. 
and spotless the blood of Christ. Yeah, Jesus, He gave it all. He gave His blood. He gave His sweat. He gave His tears for you and me. But that's just the first point that I want to make. I want to go on now to the other application of this expression of blood, sweat, and tears. And this, this is a challenge, a challenge to you. What we've seen when we talk about Jesus and the blood and sweat and tears of Jesus, we've seen that's what you are worth to Jesus. His utmost effort. But the real question I want you to think about today is what is Jesus worth to you? Is he worth your utmost effort? Is he worth your blood and sweat and tears? Is the Christian life worth it to you? Is the lost world worth your blood, sweat and tears? Are you willing to give your all for his cause? I want you to notice that uh, the Bible says the Christian life is hard work. It's toil, wearying labor, strenuous effort. In the New Testament, uh, there are two different words for work. There's uh, the Greek word that means just ordinary work. Then there's the, another word, kapos, that means hard work, toil, labor. That's what the Bible uses, or that's one of the words the Bible uses to describe the Christian life. It says, yeah, the Christian life is work, but it's also toil. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, you know this verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's just the ordinary word for work. But the rest of it says, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians that he's constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love. Labor. Kapos. Jesus uses the verb form of this word in Matthew 11.28 when he says, Come to me, all who are weary. And that's the word. Every one of you who is working to exhaustion, come to me and I'll give you rest. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17 about the elders, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who, and here's that word again, who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, this, is, this is the way the Bible presents the nature of the Christian life. Hard work, labor, toil, blood, sweat, and tears. And I challenge you to reach deeper so that your life is being lived on that level. How can you tell? How can you tell if you're really giving your all, going all out, laboring for Jesus? Well, let me pose some questions for you. How hard do you actually fight against sin? How hard do you fight against sin? I'm thinking of uh, Hebrews 12, verse 4, which where, where the writer is kind of chastising us all when he says, 
You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, we know what uh, a martyr is. We know what it means just by looking back on church history. Uh, for someone to shed his blood as a martyr by refusing to deny Jesus and by being put to death in, in some of the most horrendous ways. But what, he's, what Hebrews is talking about here is striving against sin itself, not just against enemies of the faith, but striving against sin. You have not yet resisted unto blood in your striving against sin. You ever hear uh, this old expression uh, It has to do with talking and saying things you shouldn't say? Somebody says, bite your tongue. Bite your tongue. And I wonder, would you, literally, would you be willing to literally bite your tongue till it bleeds rather than cursing or lying or saying some harsh word? Many Christians are not so willing. I had an uncle by marriage, member of a, another church. He was elected deacon. And I don't know why, but for one, for some reason I was there. I was uh, fairly young at the time, probably a teenager. I was there when uh, he was appointed deacon, and I, I remember him standing on the church steps, uh, kind of giving a little acceptance speech. And he said to the people who had voted him in as deacon, he said, I just want you all to know that uh, sometimes my tongue is not connected to my brain. And what he was saying is, I've been known to cuss. And basically what he was saying is, I'm going to keep on cussing. And I know for a fact that he did. Because I was around him a lot. My tongue is not connected to my brain. You know people like that? It's more like your tongue isn't connected to your soul when you keep using your tongue in wrong ways. And all I'm saying is, would, would you be willing to bite your tongue until it bleeds when you feel tempted to say one of those words that you know you shouldn't say? Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus approaches us with something even more drastic than just biting your tongue. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. I'm just thinking, wouldn't that be a great uh, graphic if I'd had a fake eyeball in my hand? And as soon as I said that, I'd throw it. Maybe next time I preach this. Okay. But Jesus says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, or it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And most of us understand Jesus is not talking about literally taking a knife, gouging out your eyeball and having the blood flowing down your cheek or taking a hatchet and chopping off your right hand and, and having the blood flowing out. But the imagery is pretty graphic, isn't it? 
And certainly we get the point that no matter what it is, no matter how precious it might seem to us, if it's sin, we've got to give it up. No matter how much it hurts, even if it costs our blood. How hard do you really struggle against the temptations of the enemy? Do you produce any sweat? I'm not counting today. <laughs> uh, do you produce any sweat in fighting against sin? Remember that passage in Ephesians 6.12 where Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. King James says, We wrestle, we wrestle against these spiritual enemies. We struggle. Or do we? Do we really struggle against sin? We really wrestle. How, how hard, how hard do you really try to keep from sinning? How easy is it for you to give in to temptation? That old saying still applies. No pain, no gain. You could also ask, have you shed any tears of repentance? And we're still talking about this idea of how hard we fight against sin. Do you ever shed tears of repentance? Listen to what David said in Psalm 119, verse 136. He says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Now, I could talk to any one of you here today and you would tell me you've cried about a lot of things. But have you ever cried because you sinned? Because you did not keep God's law? Matthew 26, 75, after Peter denied Christ, he went out and he wept bitterly. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, and you can mourn for different reasons. There's been mourning here today for the passing of good Christian friends and co-workers. But Jesus is talking about a different kind of mourning. He's talking about mourning because of your sin. James 4, verse 9, He says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. How many times have you had people say to you, Have a nice day? Well, what if you turned around back to them and said, have a miserable day. They probably wouldn't get it. But James is kind of telling that to us. He says, have a miserable day. Not every day. But especially when you sin, you should have a miserable day. Why do we weep for our sins? Not just because of what sin does to us or to others around us but especially because of what sin does to God Himself. There are a lot of ways you can define the word sin, and I know most of them. But I think what really describes sin most precisely is that sin is a wound in the heart of God. And how can we sin against God without breaking down in tears? How hard do we fight against sin? 
Do, do we expend our sweat and blood and tears in such a fight? Some years ago, I, I had a well-known missionary come into my office over on the seminary campus. And he was, he was having some problems. He was wrestling against some sin in his own life. He, he asked me, he says, I seem to have this resentment and anger and jealousy in my heart against some of my family members. And I'm not, I try to get rid of it, and I need some help. One of the things I asked him was, have you prayed about this? And, oh, yeah. I says, have you prayed earnestly? Well, yeah. And then I said, have you actually prayed on your face on the floor for hours? About this? And he just kind of said, I didn't know you could do that. How can you do that? You can. Depends on how hard you want to work to fight against sin. Here's another question. I'm trying to get you to probe your own heart to see whether you have this blood, sweat, and tears mentality. The question is, how, how much do you care about saving the lost. Do you ever notice uh, that when some great natural disaster happens, like we've had a lot of in the last year or two, like the earthquakes in China, the, the uh, hurricanes, like in um, New Orleans or the typhoon over in Myanmar, we've got the fires in California, we've got uh, floods in the Midwest, we've got all these things. But one of the things that stands out in my mind when these things happen is how people pitch in. People will come from different countries even to come and fight against these, uh, like the fires, or to try to rescue people where buildings have collapsed around them and they're trapped under buildings for days. And you see pictures on TV or in the paper <coughs> of these people who are working so hard, gone without sleep for three days, and their faces are full of grime just to save somebody's physical life. How much do we toil to save somebody's eternal life? How much do you toil to save anybody lost in sin? What kind of effort is it worth to you? Here's what it was worth to the Apostle Paul. This is 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27. It's a pretty good example of the blood, sweat, and tears mentality. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. Of course they are. But I am more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship throughout many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You know, as you read that list, don't you just feel yourself shrinking? getting smaller and smaller. Paul was doing this to save the lost. What kind of list 
could you draw up for yourself? How many tears have you shed for the lost? Remember Jesus weeping over Jerusalem? In the Old Testament, David said this in Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I couldn't help but think of a fellow named David Wilkerson when I was thinking on these things. Now, his beliefs are not the same as mine, and that's a different issue. But David Wilkerson was a preacher in a little church in Pennsylvania back, I think, in the early 1960s when he read a story in Life magazine. And here's how he tells it. These are his words. He says, The whole strange adventure got its start one night as I sat in my study reading Life magazine. I merely turned a page, and at first glance it seemed there was nothing there to interest me. The page showed a pen drawing of a trial taking place in New York City, 350 miles from my home there in rural Pennsylvania. I'd never been to New York and I never wanted to go, except maybe to see the Statue of Liberty. Well, I started to flip the page over, but as I did, something caught my eye. It was the eyes of a figure in the drawing, a boy who was one of seven boys on trial for murder. I held the magazine closer to get a better look. The artist had captured a look of bewilderment, hatred, and despair in that young boy's features. Suddenly, I began to cry, he says. What's the matter with me, I wondered, impatiently brushing away the tear. Then I looked at the picture more carefully. The boys were just teenagers. They were members of a gang called the Dragons. Beneath the picture was a story of how they had brutally attacked and killed a 15-year-old polio victim. The story revolted me, as it should. It literally turned my stomach. But why did he cry? He cried because... not. Really, not because of the boy that was murdered, but because of the hopelessness of the murderers, these boys who had committed this awful crime. And he decided from that point on, his ministry would be to minister to teenagers. And David Wilkerson moved to, immediately to New York to try to relate to these boys and started a ministry that's still worldwide. It's called Teen Challenge. He wrote a book years ago called The Cross and the Switchblade, which I remember reading, and it was this point that stuck out in my mind. Tears shed for the lost. What are you willing to give up? It's my third question for you is to, you know, just to help you judge yourself on this. What are you willing to give up to serve God more effectively, more fully? Would you be willing to give up your, your family or a member of your family at least? At least in, uh, in the sense of not having them live near to you? What if a child or a grandchild of yours were called to a far-off mission field? I'll bet that's true of many of you here in this audience. 
Would you be willing to give them your blessing as they leave you to move thousands of miles away, not just your children, but your little grandchildren as they're born and grow up? We all know families like that. I think of uh, the Fell family. Um, Barbara and I know uh, Jim and Donna Fell quite well. And we know one of their sons. Is it Adrian? Is, is he the one, Adrian, that's missionary to Ethiopia? And we hear the reports of them and the things that they'll go through. And this, this applies to dozens and hundreds of others who are separated from loved ones. Would you be willing to do that, to give up the, the, your closeness to family, to go to the other side of the earth? Jesus said it this way, Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me, not worthy of me. He who loves son and daughter more than me, not worthy of me. Some of our international students who come to Cincinnati Christian University and Bible Seminary, some of the students come from other countries halfway around the world. And sometimes they come by, the, they're married and have families at home, but they come to the seminary campus and sometimes stay as long as two years without ever going back to see their own children or, or a spouse. And I don't know how they do it, to tell you the truth. But they're committed. They have this blood, sweat, and tears mentality. Whatever it takes to be better prepared to serve God. Yes, it hurts. But are the lost worth a few tears? Would you give up your own life if it were, were required? You say, well, yeah, if I had to die for Jesus, if I had to be a martyr, I would do that. Revelation 2.10 says, be, be faithful unto death. I read it a long time ago. I think it was William Barclay who said, uh, he thinks what this means is, when it says, be faithful unto death, he says he thinks it means be faithful even if it kills you. Is that our stance? I will be faithful even if it kills me. Yeah, okay, we can say that because right now most of us are not threatened with immediate martyrdom. But what about making your body a living sacrifice? What about giving up your personal preferences on how you want to live and truly in your heart saying, saying those words to the song, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. As long as it's Carmel, California. Yeah, I've always wanted to start a church in Carmel, California. I wonder if I could get people to support me in doing that. Cancun, Mexico. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Really? Yeah, well, it's easy to say. Yeah, I would die for Christ. But are you willing to give up one night a week? Just in some kind of church service, practicing for the choir, studying to teach a lesson, doing volunteer work at the building, evangelizing. Yeah, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, as long as it's some uh, impossible situation that I know will never happen. My last point is to ask you or, or to ask ourselves, 
How do we attain this blood, sweat, and tears mentality? I've talked about how Jesus gave his blood, sweat, and tears for the greatest cause imaginable, the salvation of the world. And I've asked you to examine yourself to see how that uh, applies to your life and commitment. And if you, if you are saying here right now, says, well, yeah, I'm doing all of that. <laughs> well, you're a better person than I am. But if you're challenged to go further and deeper, how do we do that? So here I'm exhorting you to um, raise the level of your intensity with which you are approaching the Christian life. Being a Christian cannot be just a part-time or half-hearted commitment. It is altogether worthy of your blood, sweat, and tears. How can we reach this level of service? I tell you, what, what some people have done puts me to shame. Now, back in 1979, there was a church that started in Boston, Massachusetts. It's called the Boston Church of Christ, which has since kind of uh, lost its way. But when it started, back in uh, 1979, it laid down these requirements for membership. It said, if you want to be a member of this congregation, here's what you have to commit to. You have to spend one hour a day in devotions. You have to attend every church service that we have. You have to bring a new person to church every week. You have to confess your sins to a fellow Christian. And you have to live at food stamp level and give the rest of your income to the church. <laughs> I just wonder, if I told you I'm going to start a new church right today and I'm, I'm recruiting any of you to be a member, and here's what you have to do. How many, I wonder how many people would uh, volunteer for that. Well, you might say, uh, did they have any success? This was in Boston, Massachusetts, remember, and this is a Restoration Church of Christ, non-instrumental orientation. They started with 25 members, and it wasn't long before they had 3,000 members, people who were willing to make this kind of commitment. How many of us do even one of those things? I was talking about this to Brother Don DeWelt uh, years ago. He was on our campus, and he, he had just been up to Boston to talk with these folks and see what, uh, what they had and you know, what he could learn from them. And in our conversation, Brother DeWelt told me that it was his practice to get up every morning by 4.30 a.m. and have two hours of devotions before he did anything else. What would it take? What would it take to get us to make a similar kind of commitment? What would it take to open our eyes to the seriousness of our commitment to Christ? You know, sometimes all it takes is to be confronted with one startling fact and to have that fact sink in and open your eyes and cause you to see things in a radical new way. An example of that is something that happened, uh, I don't know how many years ago now, over in England, when a British couple had sextuplets. That's six kids at the same time. 
Now imagine during the pregnancy, as with most pregnancies, there's joy, there's excitement, there's expectation of the birth. And then the doctor says, you know, I think, uh, I think there's going to be more than one. And then on the day of the birth, here's the father, the young father in the waiting room pacing when the doctor comes in and announces, guess what? It's sextuplets. Now, this might not sink in right away. And I, I saw the news. I saw the news uh, right after this when the, this new father was being uh, interviewed. And with a dazed expression on his face, all he could say was, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. <laughs> well, it wasn't going to take long for him to believe it. Wasn't going to take long for, before the radical nature of this pronouncement, it's sextuplets, would sink in. And the radical nature of the changes, literally, that were about to befall that household as trying to feed and burp and change and bathe six babies at the same time, it's sextuplets. As a kind of parallel, I think a lot of Christians... One or five or ten or twenty-five or forty years after becoming a Christian, still have not realized what a radical commitment it is to become a Christian. It hasn't sunk in. Many Christians have not yet made any really serious changes in how they talk, how they treat their family how they spend their money, how they budget their time. So what we need is for somebody, some doctor to walk in and say, it's sextuplets, or maybe something similar. Similarly life-changing and life-shaking. Well, I want to tell you what that, what that is, what that saying is that ought to shake us to the bottoms of our feet. It's found in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. The words that jump out of this text, the radically life-changing words are these. You are not your own. Just how radical is that? Imagine. Tonight, well, let's not say tonight. Let's not spoil family camp. Let's say after you get back home, some night after you get home, there's going to be a knock on your door in the middle of the night and somebody's going to come in and take you captive, kidnap you, and sell you into slavery. Something similar to that happened to a woman named Ingrid Betancourt and some others in the country of Colombia back in 2002. She was running for president of Colombia when she was captured by the leftist rebels. And for six years, she and others were held in captivity until uh, just two or three weeks ago, 14 of them were dramatically rescued. She was on the Larry King show and she was asked, how hard was it to go from one moment being a free person to the next moment 
being a prisoner. And she said, uh, well, here you are, a free woman. And then you become a prisoner and you receive all kinds of orders. Sit here, stand there. And you don't even have the possibility of even moving from one place to another without asking for permission. Radically different. Folks, in a real sense, this is what happened to us when we became Christians. Whether you realize it or not, it's time to realize it now. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. He owns you. You are not your own. This means your time is not your own. Your money is not your own. Your mind, your family, your job. And if you're still living as if you're your own boss, and as if the 90 or 95% of the money you don't give to church still belongs to you, or that uh, all the time in the week besides those two hours you're in church on Sunday, oh, that's your time, you need to change. I want to tell you, it's sex tuplets. You are not your own. Slaves don't have those kinds of privileges. Talk about something dramatic happening. I remember one of my favorite stories from my youth was about Cotton Jones. Anybody know who Cotton Jones is, E. Ray Jones? Preacher, one of the influencers of my life. He, as a young preacher, he preached at the Maxwell Street Christian Church in Lexington, Kentucky. I think it has another name now, but I forgot what it is. But he, he made a dramatic announcement one day from his pulpit. He says, in about three weeks, on a Sunday night, I'm going to preach a sermon called Five People I Want to See Go to Hell. And I'm going to name them. Well, the news picked this up. And this was announced on the television, or if they had a TV, at least on the radio. And people began to pass the word of mouth. And when that Sunday night came, that building was full and chairs were sitting up in the yard. And Cotton Jones, he says, I told you I'm going to tell you five people I want to see go to hell. And he named them. says, first of all, I want my chairman of the elders to go to hell. And he says, I want the Sunday school superintendent. Remember when we had those? Uh, to go to hell. And his youth minister... And he named a couple more. I want to see them go to hell. But then he said, remember, I didn't say I want to see them go into hell. Just want them to go up to hell so that they can look in and see the suffering of the lost. And to see if their lives won't be changed by that. Well, I don't know. I don't really personally want to go even up to hell. But I think we all need to say, whatever it takes to get me to commit my whole life, my blood, my sweat, my tears, we should embrace it. Lord Alfred Douglas, in something called Collected Poems back in 1919, said, talk about poetry. He says, poetry is forged slowly and patiently, link by link, with sweat and blood and tears. I don't know about poetry, but I think it's true of the Christian life. Thank you.